Hello, I'm Adrienne Stone and I'm delighted to bring to you Constitutional Cafe, a new podcast for informal but scholarly conversations about constitutional law and politics worldwide. Constitutional Cafe is brought to you by a team. We are based at the Centre of Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, but we are global in our origin, in our training and most of all in our outlook. Each episode, one of us takes a question of interest to constitutional scholars and discusses it with friends and colleagues from around the world. We have a special focus on overlooked ideas and countries and regions underrepresented in global constitutional scholarship. So settle in and enjoy. Here is our very first episode, hosted by my colleague, William Partlett. Hello and welcome to the Constitutional Cafe, organized by the Center for Constitutional Studies and the Laureate Program at Melbourne Law School. My name is Will Partlett, and I'm an associate professor here at the law school. And one of my key areas of interest is constitutionalism and the project of constitutionalism in the former Soviet republics. These are the 15 successor states that emerged from the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991. Now, I'm pleased to be able to convene a podcast to discuss constitutionalism in the region with three leading experts from the region. The post-Soviet region is extremely diverse, as we're going to go, going to see in this podcast today. It spans from in the Northwest, the Estonia and the Baltic states, all the way in the South to Central Asia and the Caucasus. So it is a region that is home to, in many cases, some of the most stable constitutional regimes in Europe, as well as some of the most unstable um, and, in many cases, authoritarian regimes uh, that exist in the Eurasian landmass. And in many cases, this is a region that um, constitutionalism remains a a, a project of significant aspiration. Now, this is a region that is often left out or not studied in comparative constitutional law literature. Um, It's a region that seems, it's kind of in many cases, that is forgotten. It's in between Europe on one side and the Asian landmass on the other. Um, But it is a region that, as we're going to see, provides significant um, insights into many of the key questions that are at the very center of um, of uh, constitutionalism at the moment and in comparative constitutional law. As, as we're going to see, we're going to be discussing today the role of courts. What role do constitutional courts play in building a constitutional system? What role does history play and representations of history play in building constitutionalism? To what extent are post-colonial legacies important? Now, this is particularly uh, important in this region as the 15 post-Soviet states themselves emerged from the Soviet Union almost 30 years ago and and since then have been engaged in a post-colonial project of state building. And in many cases, this, as we're going to hear, this post-colonial project has strongly involved overcoming the legacy of executive centralism that they uh, inherited from the Soviet period, as well as the challenges of, of establishing an effective state and nation within, within that um, uh, post-colonial context. So without um, further ado, let me please now introduce um, our three panelists uh, with respect to uh, who are going to talk us through this uh, particular, these, these questions of constitutionalism in post-Soviet Eurasia. 
First is Paloma Toupee, who's currently a lecturer of constitutional law at the University of Tartu. Um, she's held a number of other positions prior to joining the university uh, in, within the Estonian state, including advising the president and working for the Ministry for Justice. So welcome, Paloma. Uh, Armen Mazmianen is a director currently of the Appella Institute for Policy Analysis in uh, Yerevan, Armenia, and is also a visiting professor at the American University of Armenia. And uh, finally, is Sanya Tagda-Gaziaeva, who's an associate professor and coordinator of the Human Rights Program at the American University of Central Asia in Bishkek. Uh, and for our purposes, she's also currently or has taught a course on democracy in dark times, so we will we'll be asking her today to, to relate some of what is happening uh, currently in the Kyrgyz um, uh, situation. She's currently joining us from uh, just outside the Constitutional Chamber in Bishkek. All right, so oh, the first question I want to ask our, our panelists today is the extent to which um, life as a teacher or a scholar of constitutional law is your own experience. And I ask you kind of briefly to relate the, the, the way in which you see constitutional law in both the way that you have, what attracted you to constitutional law, why you chose to study constitutional law, and um, how you um, engage with constitutional law now, both as a teacher of constitutional law, as a scholar of constitutional law, and as an advocate. So let me start with um, Paloma. Can you, can you talk us through your experiences with constitutional law and your own, um, your own kind of journey to studying constitutional law in Estonia? Thank you very much, William, and hello. Thank you for the invite to participate in this uh, talk. So, uh, what about constitutional law and me? I have to say I did not uh, study exclusively constitutional or comparative uh, constitutional law. But uh, how to speak, uh, constitutional law and uh, the therewith connected uh, topic of politics was, so to speak, encoded into me. Actually, I was uh, born in Estonia, what was then occupied and part of the Soviet Union. My mother is Estonian, my father Colombian, and my parents uh, fled the Soviet Union. That meant that I then afterwards uh, grew up in uh, Germany what we used to know as uh, Western Germany. So from a very early age on, I, I just grew up with uh, politics, with the question of democracy. What is democracy? Uh, I, I knew from my childhood on that uh, this was very important for me to be able um, to communicate with my family. That meant uh, that we need a democratic state, that states have to be free. And uh, this is how actually I, I came to study law and constitutional law, because it was for me a, uh, a very personal issue. It has always been a personal issue. Also, if we think, for example, of uh, Colombia, uh, transitional or restorative uh, justice, all these aspects were very important to me. And um, afterwards, um, as you already correctly said, um, I, I, I was a state official. I found this very interesting. I have been working with a lot of um, uh, politicians, and I think it's very important also to know how this works together, the law 
uh, and the state, the the real, um, the practical state, how how it is uh, actually um, uh, organized and how it works every day. And now I'm very very happy to have the opportunity to work at uh, the university and to work with students. And I hope that. Uh, uh, I also can use uh, this practical experience that I have gained um, to to communicate it uh, to the students, and and yeah, say for me it's a personal, very important issue to show students uh, that democracy and constitutional law cons uh, constitutions for themselves are very important and affect actually every one of us. Thank you. Well, thanks, thanks, Paloma, and and can I now turn to Sonia to to share some of her experiences of being a constitutional law scholar and what drew you to it and 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 what you what you hope to do with your your career in constitutional law. Um, hello, Will. Uh, hello, dear colleagues. So essentially, my uh, interest uh, in constitutional law started when I was doing my LLM in human rights at Central European University. Uh, because frankly speaking, before that in my undergraduate programs, I didn't like this subject at all. Uh, probably it's because uh, it was taught not uh, correctly, I guess. So, But uh, I was really enchanted by this uh, field, particularly after taking classes with Professor Renato Woods, Andres Shayo, um, Aaron Barak. And uh, this is where I was able to see that Actually, the true meaning of the Constitution is actually to limit the government uh, with later on ensuring the protection of fundamental rights and freedoms. Uh, because I myself come from a former post-Soviet Union state where we usually study constitutional law as something that actually empowers the government, which, was, which is completely an opposite um, understanding of the Constitution. So this is where I decided actually to continue my um, a doctoral degree, and I applied again to Central European University, uh, particularly in comparative constitutional law program. So, after, uh, basically, currently now, what I'm doing is I'm uh, back at Kyrgyzstan teaching constitutional law related courses. And especially now, surprisingly, I became the advocate of the constitutional law, constitutionalism in Kyrgyzstan. Because right now, Kyrgyzstan is yet experiencing another round of constitutional reform. Um, but this time, it seems like we are going kind of backwards, again, bringing back all the super presidential forms and etc. Uh, which is, um, and now what I'm experiencing is that with advocating constitutionalism and constitution, I was able to kind of mobilize young generation of lawyers around um, around me, and we are now advocating the why it is important to have the stability of the constitution. That actually Kyrgyzstan became the victim of this uh, never-ending changes and amendments to the constitution, which later on um, and ended up having all this coup d'etats and etc. So now we are trying to persuade uh, our fellow citizens that it is the constitution is a very important uh, document, that it is an agreement between us and the state, that we cannot change it the way we want or for the sake of the interest of certain group or certain individual. Um, and so with that, it seems like now, like I became not only the scholar in comparative constitutional law, but also the advocate. And uh, I will see to what extent 
I would have enough energy for doing that. Unfortunately, now um, I, I myself and others, uh, we have become uh, the victims of unprecedented cyberbullying. A lot of nasty things are being written about us um, uh, somehow. But at the same time, the civil lightning here is that for the first time in Kyrgyzstan, people are mobilizing around certain idea. In this case, it's the idea of rule of law and constitutionalism, because previously it was always people used to mobilize around personalities. Uh, so, yeah, this is just the briefly about uh, why I got attracted with this area and what am I doing about it now. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. And we can see already um, from both Paloma and Sonia's um, kind of stories, the, the importance of transnational or supranational um, education, supranational um, study of constitutionalism and, and its influence, and its kind of influence in the post-Soviet world, um, and the extent to which that influence is is not um, a one-way um, driver. In many cases, we see um, you know potential instances of backsliding. We're going to talk more about um, you know, the experience of what's happening in Kyrgyzstan at the moment as, as an example of that. Um, on that, I want to I want to now talk, turn to Armand to talk a little bit about his own journey to constitutional law. What attracted him to constitutional law? What made him into the constitutional uh, law scholar and advocate and teacher that he is today? So, Armand. Well, thank you very much for putting this panel together. It's an excellent idea, excellent opportunity to share with you and with colleagues. What uh, drove me to constitutional law and especially comparative constitutional law was a Actually, my big curiosity at the beginning of the 90s when I started studying the law about uh, where is my society and where, is our, where are our societies. Actually, uh, studied law in Armenia then, an independent country, but I considered the larger, the bigger Soviet uh, space, post-Soviet space as my home. And my curiosity about where are these societies leading to, what are our identities, um, drove me to studying constitutional law rather than any other specific uh, branches of law. And uh, I was trying to ask the question, are we going towards democracy? Are we going towards human rights? Or where are we going? And Trying to answer these questions within the realm of uh, law it brought me to constitutional law and especially comparative constitutional law because the answers to those, those questions were more seen in the experience of other societies in which uh, the constitutional law contained already the answers to these questions. Hence my curiosity, hence my interest in constitutional law, comparative constitutional law, and later on going into those societies in which I saw the answers to the questions and studying their patterns, their experiences, of course, uh, uh, developed my interest in comparative constitutionalism. That's uh, the short way of answering your question. Thank you, Armand. Yeah, I think, I mean, a key question that we're going to be thinking about as we as we kind of go into some of the substance of the post-Soviet world is directionality and the importance, I think. I mean, uh, it's it's often, um, you know, I think it's no it's no question that that 
uh, constitutions play a very important role across the region, and that and that one of the you know problematic stereotypes of the region is that. Um, constitutions are shams. Constitutions don't matter. I think in many cases, as we as we've heard from all three of our scholars, constitutions are important bellwethers of um, of the democratic and and you know and, and of political development in uh, in particular countries in the region. Uh, and in, for that reason, deserve to be studied. I think um, in in detail and and the field. And we hope. I mean, we hope this podcast and others and and the work that we're all doing will help to develop the field somewhat as well because it's a field that. Um, has um, has 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 been has generated less interest than I think other areas of the comparative constitutional law world. On that, I want to now turn to questions of constitutional development in the region, um, and, I, and I'm going to go now in reverse order. And I want to ask Armen first to talk a little bit about the pr- process of reform that's currently underway in Armenia. Um, and f- and f- to get your thoughts on the you know the current state of constitutional reform, what are its goals, um, and what is its general direction? What do you think? Um, you know, Armenia is not a country that's that is often thought of or studied as a part of the comparative constitutional law canon. What can we learn from Armenia's process? Do you think? Over to you. All right. Uh, let me first uh, tell you that uh, we adopted our first constitution at a referendum in uh, 1995, so 25 years ago. And since then, our constitution has been changed uh, two times. And these have been very important and uh, sweeping changes, not just a few uh, isolated changes, but these were changes that would deserve to be called uh, uh, sweeping uh, fundamental changes as at least they uh, fundamentally changed the government form, which deserve in other countries, in other contexts, we would say that we adopted a new constitution. So in 2005, uh, in 10 years after adopting the constitution, the constitution was changed. And then in another 10 years, uh, in 2015, the constitution was changed again. This said, uh, just two years ago, in 2018, the country underwent a very, very important um, change as uh, a very big mass protest swept the former government and uh, a new government came to be inaugurated after a democratic, probably the most democratic election in the country that in 2018. And since then, there has been a very big talk about uh, introducing a new constitution that would become a a product of a consensus among the society and would also outline the vision and the aspiration for the future of the country. And there has been a constitutional reforms commission uh, founded under the prime minister of uh, Armenia. And I have uh, had a privilege of being part of that commission and we have been drafting an agenda for constitutional changes so far, but this said, I should tell you that in the last few months, the country is again very turbulent. You may know that we had a very devastating war. It's unsinkable in 21st century, I know, but that's the reality. And the war has changed a lot in the political landscape in the country. The polity is not uh, any more interested in constitutional change, I should confess. It may still be, and the government is not as strong as it used to be, 
before the war. So now we are rethinking a lot about our identities, including constitutional trajectory. I wouldn't be so certain about the constitutional change as much as I would be, say, three months ago. And yet this constitutional reform is very much on hold now. It remains to be seen whether we go on with the constitutional change, because this was very much um, a constitutional agenda, reform agenda prompted by the current government, which, as I told you now, is quite weak at the moment. And it remains to be seen if it stands at all. If it doesn't, then the constitutional reform agenda will be put on hold until a new government is formed. That's in brief the current state of constitutional changes in Armenia. But otherwise, uh, you said that Armenia is probably not a very interesting country for comparative constitutional uh, law or the study of comparative constitutional law. I should tell you that Armenia is in fact a very interesting pattern or offers a lot of interesting patterns for comparative constitutionalism because it really reveals a lot of patterns which are common for uh, any other country. In terms of constitutional change, in terms of the way how politics and constitutionalism is um, are affecting each other, and very much also about the patterns of constitutional adjudication, because so far we had a very interesting case of a very dynamic, vibrant constitutional court embedded into the politics of um, um, mixed or hybrid regimes. And I have tried to reveal these patterns some, uh, in, in some of my publications. But I think, yes, again, if there is any interest about the patterns of constitutionalism in um, uh, aspiring democracies, Armenia might be a very interesting case. And I invite everyone to have a look at its patterns. Thanks, Armand. I, I want to return to your work on on the politicization of, of constitutional courts, in particular, a little bit later in the podcast, because I think that's something that's interesting and important to talk about, and maybe is another another something that, that the post-Soviet area and, and, the, and Armenia in particular can help to teach us about constitutionalism. But I, I tend to agree with you that the, that the comparative constitutional law world should become more interested in this region. It does show deep, you know, as you suggest, patterns and um, important themes about how we develop constitutionalism, how does how is constitutionalism built, what kind of institutions are required, how do those institutions relate to one another, and so forth. Um, on that note, I think I might turn now to Sanya, who, as, as I think I mentioned at the beginning of the pod, is actually sitting outside the constitutional chamber in Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan as, as Sanya had mentioned, is undergoing a major constitutional reform process at the moment as well. Um, and, and asked Sanya to reflect a little bit on, on what happened. We had a, there was a state breakdown uh, a couple of months ago. What happened after that and, and what the current um, constitutional landscape is looking like um, at the moment in Kyrgyzstan? So over to you, Sanya. Uh, so essentially, probably you're following the news. In early October, uh, as a result of the parliamentary elections, we had massive civil riots um, protesting against the results of the elections because there was the fact of massive vote buying and use of administrative resources. And as a result, the elections have been annulled. Um, but then later on, everything that happened was really like unpredictable. 
the Sadr Japarov, it's the former convict who was released from prison. And over the night, he has been acquitted by the Supreme Court. And then uh, he became the acting prime minister. And then he became the acting president. And he's now running for uh, the presidency. And entire October was full of uh, fundamental violations of both the procedural and substantive norms of our constitution. Uh, so currently we have the current convocation of parliament whose term officially have expired already on October 28. But what they did uh, was in October 22nd, they have adopted the law, which did three things. First, they have substantially prolonged their uh, power, the, the, the term. Um, at minimum until June uh, 2021. Second, they have suspended the elections that were uh, supposed to take place on December 20. And then the third, they have um, initiated the constitutional reform. So today, uh, the constitutional chamber is having um, a hearing now on reviewing the constitutionality of this law. And uh, what's interesting is like, a couple of weeks ago, the Venice Commission, in its urgent amicus brief, have also made their uh, statement about this uh, situation, clearly um, underlining that in this um, um, extra constitutional terms, uh, the parliaments cannot use their terms for extraordinary circumstances as a constitutional reform. Uh, they have also said that the suspension of the uh, parliamentary elections can also be reviewed as the violation of this democratic process. So we will see. Uh, what's interesting is that the Constitutional Chamber judges themselves have applied to the Venice Commission and are they going to listen to their recommendations or ignore it? But my prognosis is that they're going to upheld the constitutionality of this law which means they will give, give the green lights that in, in January we will have together with the presidential elections a constitutional reform. Uh, so the draft text of the constitution has been already published um, and unfortunately it completely lacks the effective system of checks and balances. Uh, it is introducing um, interesting like quasi-constitutional bodies as uh, uh, people's assembly, we call it Narodne Krultai. Um, th such kind of attempts have already been taken by our former presidents. Uh, Turkmenistan has it, uh, Nazarbayev did it. So usually uh, these bodies uh, are the uh, very um, like uh, favorite bodies of this uh, authoritarian president in Central Asia that usually they use as a political tool for the purposes of taming parliament. So, and most likely this is what um, they're going to do up next. And another worrisome uh, signs of the draft constitution is that starting from the preamble, they are replacing uh, objective um, legal norms, such as the aspiration for the rule of law and etc., with subjective moral norms as the supremacy of the moral principles and uh, values. But it is still not clear what does it mean, moral values and principles and traditions. And there are many uh, more uh, problematic aspects in the Constitution itself, especially in the parts with respect to the fundamental rights and freedoms. Uh, the proportionality principle has been excluded. Um, a lot, and possible censorship is being introduced um, 
um, access to information was also excluded and many more things. And most importantly, of course, the uh, what we see now in this draft constitution is that a lot of concentration of power um, in the hands of the president. So president is becoming the head of the state with almost unlimited powers. Uh, and in interim provisions, it is even written that the president for this interim period can issue presidential decrees with the power of constitutional law. This is also very worrisome. So th this is generally what is happening now in Kyrgyzstan. And we will see, I think, in a couple of hours, the chamber will announce its decision. Uh, but generally, I think um, the Central Asia in the Competitive Constitutional Law Scholarship uh, has always been kept under the shadow of the former Soviet Union and studied by Comparative Constitutional Law Scholars as an integral part of the post-communist project. Um, and unfortunately, there was no separate research has been done on this area particularly. Um, so in my doctoral dissertation, in other works, I try to demonstrate that Central Asia, even though it is highly influenced by the legacy of the Soviet Union, actually this region is more than just the post-communist purge act. And actually looking and researching uh, Central Asian constitutional courts or generally constitutions only through the prism or the blinders of post-communist approach might actually lead to a misleading research outcomes because internal dynamics within Central Asia, uh, namely we have this existing clan politics, regionalism, nationalism, rise of political Islam, pervasive clientelism, corruption combined with like geopolitical factors, authoritarian regionalism, political economy, and et cetera actually makes this region a very unique. And I, and I think the uh, constitutional structures and developments in Central Asia require a broader contextual analysis. And if research in this broader contextual study, um, the scholarship on, on Central Asia actually has a high potential of contributing to the existing global discourse on constitutionalism and uh, judicial review and other issues. Thank, thank you, thank you, Sonia. I mean, that's a couple of things. I think we're going to pick up a little bit later in the in the pod is the discussion of how these um, institutions, such as the Narodny Korotai, the these these assemblies, these kind of pseudo parliamentary assemblies, which are often appointed, I think, in many cases by presidents, how they how they essentially further facilitate presidential or super presidentialism, as you've been mentioning, these kind of excessively presidential systems, and also to talk about history, whether there are subregions within the post-Soviet region that need to be studied and that should be thought of as important, um, is, is Central Asia's um, history of Islam and Central Asia's um, particular history important. We'll talk, we'll pick that up as well. Uh, and I want to turn to to Paloma and ask um, particularly about some, some ongoing events currently in Estonia. Uh, you know, Estonia is often regarded as, uh, along with other Baltic nations, as a stable form of constitutionalism. I mentioned that in the beginning. But to what extent do you think um, there are currently threats to the constitutional system in uh, Estonia at the moment as well? And in particular, I mentioned here the, the, the upcoming referendum next year on, on, on the definition of marriage. Um, 
So can you comment a little bit on the situation in Estonia and, and, and what your view is on the role on the kind of role of the constitution and, and its ongoing, you know, kind of the ongoing struggle for constitutionalism, which, of course, is, is a non is an ongoing um, is an ongoing um, kind of discourse and itself struggle. Over to you, Paloma. Thank you very much, William. It's very interesting to hear from Sonia and Arman also. And, and yeah, fortunately, as you said, uh, we have no many news from Estonian side, <laughs> not so many. But uh, very briefly, I would like to come back to something very important that Sonia said. I think that when we talk about this constitutionalism today, we have an idea. We have an idea like of uh, similarly to the founders of the American Republic that, that for us constitutional law means for itself something there. Uh, it has a substantive meaning, meaning also the limitation of uh, public power, the rule of law, the therewith connected necessity um, to protect uh, human rights. And I think this is a great difference. And uh, this is what we see because uh, the Soviet Union also had a constitution and the Soviet Union, so to speak, states. And, and there was um, Estonian Soviet constitution there where many great rights uh, you could read. And but none of them was uh, uh, effective, actually. So this is uh, just one thing um, that came to my mind listening to the others, that it's very important also to keep in mind. Um, uh, what a change uh, understanding constitutionalism has been going on also for these post-communist uh, countries where law is uh, really something that you can apply, that's worth something, and the understanding why constitutionalism in this sense is important. And coming back now more precisely um, to your question and to Estonia, um, I, I would briefly like to depict um, how we came to the situation today, because Estonia um, regained its independence in 91, and then very quickly it was decided that we need a new constitution, that we will not stick to the old one uh, from with the last amendments from uh, 30 the year 37, the new version of the constitution that uh, did not fit into the understanding of democracy 50 years later, more or less. Um, then uh, a new constitution was um, written very quickly. It was in, in just about one year. It's a clearly revolutionary constitution, a post-communist uh, constitution, um, especially also focused on um, then the uh, division of powers, the rule of law, the protection of fundamental rights. And as we have seen, this constitution has actually served Estonia very well for more or less uh, 30 years. Um, and there have been just minor, uh, five minor changes to the constitution um, since then. There has been and there is ongoing how to say, uh, every now and then analysis. Just last year, there was a new analysis presenting, presented uh, by legal scholars. And um, actually, um, this project was even led by the Ministry of Justice about what could be changed in the constitution, how it could be, for example, amended also in the light of how uh, democracy and um, uh, the, the organization of the state has changed. 
uh, in this uh, last 30 years. But there is also some kind of political understanding, at least until now, until recently, there has been a kind of political understanding that this constitution that has served as well um, should uh, be amended only if this is really necessary because it's um, yeah it's, it's seen as uh, some kind of um, warrant for Estonians independence independent Estonia always has had its um, own constitution and actually Estonia is a very new state it gained independence for the first time only in 1918 so around about 100 years ago and we know that from this last 100 years more or less 50 years it had to spend again um, under Soviet rule. So this Estonian constitution goes together with Estonian independence and is very important for this small state. Estonia has uh, today 1.3 million of inhabitants. It was for centuries foreign rule. So this is maybe to, to gain a bit of understanding. It's a very small country. And so this having a constitution protecting um, this independent uh, state is very important for Estonia and therefore has a very um, difficult amendment procedure. And until now, there has, um, yeah, every time uh, like change has been proposed, um, there has been very harsh criticism. And as it is said, look, we have come that far and uh, our constitution has served us well. So it's very important to keep the stability. Let's not change it. Uh, what you said correctly, then after last year's parliamentary election, um, the far-right ACRA party also became a part of the government um, in Estonia, a coalition government. And they have been clearly more open to change uh, the existing system. They also have uh, their ideas to change the constitution, to have more direct democracy included into it, which for itself, I would say, does ne not necessarily have to be a negative uh, Thing. But the question is, um, for what do you use it and how do you intend to use it? And uh, yes, it's also true, speaking about direct democracy, also the, um, the coalition agreement foresees uh, for now next year a referendum on um, marriage. Actually, uh, on this, there was also a uh, fierce discussion because uh, uh, it, there was the the initial idea, sure, and what the the far right party what they would like to do is uh, to amend the constitution, saying that marriage is only an institution between men and women, as I think we have uh, now seen in different CEE countries. Um, that is the one amendment that uh, different countries try to implement. But this was not possible um, to, to present this question as a constitutional amendment because there's not the necess necessary majority in parliament um, to uh, yeah, amend the constitution. And there are different ways to do it, but this they knew already, and the, um, and the government also knew they couldn't do this. So um, there's a 
possibility uh, also to submit to the people uh, for referendum an issue of national importance um, at, at a referendum, just to ask people, what do you want? So this does not mean necessarily that the constitution has changed. That is what is now happening. And actually the law, um, the parliamentary formal law also foresees in Estonia that uh, marriage is um, only an institution between uh, man and uh, woman. Actually, there's a, uh, also another possibility by law to register also same-sex uh, partnerships. Um, but this is a clearly yeah, political initiative it's not directly connected uh, with uh, changing the constitution, but what we see, it brings about a very, uh, yeah, very heated discussions about actually constitutional questions that we haven't been debating for a long time. As I said, uh, for the last 30 years, almost, there was a common understanding that uh, what's in the constitution um, that serves us well, uh, how, it, uh, how, how democracy works in Estonia. Um, uh, this is, it, it's a good system, it's a stable system, but I think, uh, yes, yeah, similarly to, to many other countries also in how to speak old Europe, we see that uh, with the uh, upcoming and with the, re um, yeah, with, with the more power, of these newly more radical um, political parties, um, this uh, democracy as it is and its functioning uh, has been put, put under question. So yes. Sorry, can I can I just interrupt quickly and ask what? So what would be the effect if this referendum goes through? You say it's non-binding, but it's very likely that it would if if you know if if a referendum were held on a question that was clearly unconstitutional so let's leave aside marriage say say a referendum was held on on you know something that is that is actually clearly unconstitutional what would be the effect of of that uh, of that referendum on the constitutional system could the could i mean would it be could it be would it be possible for um, for the referendum to just be ignored? I mean, what's, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm asking here the kind of this somewhat of a collision between constitutional principles and popular sovereignty. Absolutely. Thank you for this question. Actually, um, I said um, that it's an issue like a question of national importance that can be, the people can be asked in a referendum. But however, and Although it's not um, a it's not a constitutional amendment, the outcome of this question is binding, actually. Uh, and this um, has really um, put under discussion how this should work. Wouldn't this be like a substantive uh, amendment to the constitution, just one that is not in writing? So this is actually a discussion that's ongoing between constitutional lawyers. And this is also what has been said in articles by uh, constitutional 
also experts, that actually we do not know. We have never used <laughs> this or so rarely used this possibility. So we're just uh, now, only now, finding out about some um, challenges that are written in the Constitution, for example, to put just an issue. Sorry, so is, Paloma, let me just stop you there because we are running out of time. I want to start putting some kind of rapid fire questions, and I'm going to be interrupting a lot here just to try to really get us to get a real discussion going. I want to turn now to, to, to Sonia to talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about Kyrgyzstan already, but can you tell us a little bit more about um, the office of the presidency and its, tra- and its kind of trajectory in Kyrgyz history? Um, and, and, and to what extent the way in which maybe the presidency in, is uses history, Central Asian history, and this idea of the Kurultai, um, as you mentioned, is used in Turkmenistan as well as is in uh, Kazakhstan. Is, to what extent there's a, there's a kind of similar or an overlap between the Central Asian history and presidentialism? Okay, so as I have already mentioned earlier, that uh, there is kind of a trend throughout Central Asia saying, like, we need to go back to our roots, you know, that we had some historical past, something unique, and etc. Um, which I think uh, in the constitution, comparative constitutional scholarship, particularly the historical background, is being kind of undermined. And this is really bad uh, because if we look at the way how generally the constitutions originated, particularly the constitutional courts in Central Asia, historical factors played a major role. For instance, the Soviet past, the rule, pan-Turkism pa- or pan-Islamism, or the fact how the early process of transition in Central Asia have taken place, for instance, unlike in Estonia or somewhere else, uh, um, the transitional process was more like top-down approach driven by former Soviet elites. Um, And that's why I think the real um, kind of revolution or the process have never taken place in Central Asia. Uh, This was the biggest problem uh, up until now. And if we go uh, discuss the role of presidency, that uh, the early constitutions of Central Asia, um, they have adopted the presidential rule. Uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan was more like semi-presidential. But gradually, all presidents using their powers to call for a referendum or through the constitutional courts have enlarged their powers and turned the constitutions into complete like super-presidential forms. And this was the turning point in 2010 for Kyrgyzstan, where uh, we decided after the uh, Bakif that probably now it's time for us to go towards parliamentarism. Um, And we have adopted completely uh, the new text of the constitution, which wasn't purely a parliamentary state, more like premier presidential, but of course with very like empowered parliament with substantially decreased powers of the president. Unfortunately, now Sadr Japarov and his supporters are using this as a argument claiming that starting from 2010, we've seen that the parliamentarism in Kyrgyzstan failed, that political parties became like corporations, um, that we need to bring back presidential form. However, they, the people got uh, misled by this fact that Kyrgyzstan was not really a real parliamentary state. But... However, this um, the kind of populism together with the um, um, kind of misinformation, all this 
uh, fake news and etc. Uh, people tend to support the bringing back the presidential form. So they believe that uh, in our mentality, it is better if we have a strong ruler with the, who later on will be responsible. But the problem is that in the draft constitution, it says nothing about the personal responsibility of the uh, president. And I think it is also important to highlight that the experience of Central Asia actually uh, confirms the existing uh, theories in the literature, uh, particularly in illiberalism and authoritarian regimes in general. There is a trend um, that reveals that uh, the fragility of democratic institutions, particularly the constitutions. Um, however, I think uh, Central Asia puts a little bit more flavor in that because the idea, the, such ideas as like Narodne Kurultais, plus on top of it, like unamendable constitutional core eternity clauses being introduced, for instance, um, like in Kazakhstan, in Tajikistan, uh, and what's interesting is that these uh, tools are being used by incumbent presidents to legitimate their regimes and kind of to moreover use it as an ex-ante tool for the purposes of creating kind of lifelong constitutional guarantees after their resignation. Such titles as leader of nation, founder of peace or El Basi are being directly integrated into the text of the constitution, uh, which I think is also kind of adds some more flavor to the existing scholarship in authoritarian regimes and illiberalism. Um, generally, that also worthwhile looking at Central Asia, because uh, I think this region confirms the fact that existing democratic constitutions simply can no longer defend itself. So something yeah. more should be done. Yeah, And I guess it is also has something to do with research methodology in comparative constitutional law as well. And I think we can also say, I mean, some, many of the, the trends towards seeing, you know, the importance of kind of a strong executive, a strong president, a strong man type, these, these ideas and, and the link between strong man or strong kind of presidential executive centralism and a strong state. And the, these kinds of themes are not just Central Asia when we see them in other parts but it is interesting to hear you say that they are linked to Central Asian history and, and, to, and to what you describe as the mentality of, of Central Asia. Um, on this, I want to really I want Armen to jump in here because um, some of what Sanya was talking about it actually is very relevant to our, what Armen has written about, which is the role of constitutional courts. I mean, we generally think constitutional courts are good things. <laughs> um, Armen, you want to talk a little bit about how they might be be abused and and are used becomes tools, particularly of powerful presidents um, in the region, and and some of the ways in which we can uh, understand this kind of strategic use of constitutional courts. Well, Will, I still think that constitutional courts are a good thing <laughs> for constitutionalism. I would even say they are indispensable for constitutionalism. I mean, there are there are countries which have constitutionalism without a constitutional court, but yet they have a court, they have human rights, and they have mechanism to enforce those. Uh, anyway, constitutional courts are almost everywhere now, uh, the indispensable part of constitutional landscapes and constitutionalism, and they are very important even in countries which do not have constitutionalism in the classical sense. Like in many countries in our region, they have constitutions without the proper feeling and uh, institutions of constitutionalism. And by the way, it would be very appropriate 
of uh, speaking about constitutionalism uh, uh, with adjectives as far as we speak about uh, post-Soviet constitutionalism. Let's see, now we're three experts uh, uh, in this uh, podcast coming from three different countries, three different, very different constitutional regimes, and we can apply very different adjectives to define those constitutional regimes. But this is a different conversation. I invite you to have another gathering to discuss this. This is a very interesting topic. But as far as constitutional courts are concerned, yes, I still think they are very important, they are indispensable, and yet, and this is something I have tried to uh, uh, emphasize in my writings, in my publications, constitutional courts, as general, the judiciary itself, as the American scholars would put it, are still the least dangerous branch in the power structures. And... uh, as everywhere, even in the United States, even in the most developed constitutional democracies, constitutional courts are subject to different different influences and they are necessarily part of the power structures and are subject to pressure or influences or they have their own uh, political views and interests. And this is, this is unavoidable. You cannot really do anything without this. And anytime speaking about this, I refer to the classical work by uh, Robert Dahl, actually a political scientist who had a very huge contribution into the field of uh, also judicial politics or politics by exactly constitutional courts. Uh, That's my uh, initial feedback, but uh, speaking about constitutional courts in our countries, in the countries in the post-Soviet space, we could also really observe these patterns uh, very illustratively. And the first indicator that I'm always using to understand the degree to which constitutional courts are independent or can be independent, or uh, consequently, they can have contribution into the development of constitutionalism, into stronger human rights protection, et cetera. And that first indicator I'm always using is the degree of competitiveness of the political systems. And here again, in the post-Soviet world, we have completely different political systems, completely different levels of competitiveness. Coloma may speak about uh, Baltic states or Estonia, in which we have the most competitive political regimes, most competitive democracies in in the post-Soviet world. Then we have countries which are more or less, let's say those which are uh, uh, classified as hybrid regimes or semi-democracies, if you wish. We can speak about Ukraine, Moldova, Armenia until recently, and even Kyrgyzstan until recently. These are hybrid regimes in which there is a certain uh, degree of competitive politics, and this affects uh, constitutional courts very much and the degree to which they are independent. And at the end of the day, we have uh, authoritarian regimes which are classified as such, and where the um, level of competitiveness competitive politics is very minimal if it exists at all. And then I should say that the objectives that we should use about constitutionalism and the degree to which constitutional courts there are independent are completely different. And here again, maybe it would be an exaggeration to classify this system, constitutional systems as sham constitutional systems or constitutional courts as sham constitutional courts, but yet 
there is a lot of uh, truth in about about using uh, adjectives like that or synonyms. For example, many you might use this uh, adjective such as facet constitutional systems or facet constitutional courts or pseudo constitutional courts or pseudo constitutional systems. Uh, these are the uh, main lines of my thinking about constitutional courts. Again, the constitutional courts and the degree to which they have contribution to constitutions in specific countries are very much dependent on the degree to which uh, political regimes are consolidated or democratic regimes are consolidated and to the degree to which there is meaningful competition between political parties or political agendas in these countries. Yeah, that, that's 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 interesting to to think through because we can, and and I guess the way the the way I should have posed the question is how do we make constitutional courts more likely to be independent? And of course, part of the question, part of the answer to that I think is is as you're suggesting is to be thinking of is that that's linked. The answer to that question is linked to this to the extent to which there is pluralism in the country and there is political competition between um, different groups and the more political competition there is the more likely you are to have independent independent courts um, I mean we really I mean there's as as our men suggested and I think Sanya and Paloma have also just there are a number of really important issues and interesting issues we could discuss you know questions of I, I would love to ask the panelists as well a little bit more about the post-colonial aspects of each of their countries, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So, what I want to do is finish the the podcast as we as we always do on this podcast by asking each of our panelists to recommend one article or one book that they suggest that they think is, and it can be and it can be a book you've written yourself or an article you've written yourself um, that you think is a real is just, that our listeners could li- to could look to to learn more about the region. Um, part of this podcast has been about, I think, introducing the region. And I think we've had a very interesting discussion about some of the re- of the interesting insights and so forth. But if you could each give us one. So start with Paloma. One article or book you think that best um, would be good for the, our listeners to read if they want to learn more about Estonian constitutionalism? Thank you very much, uh, William. Actually... I chose a book that's not only about Estonia, but also, but as we know, globalization has also has reached constitutionalism. And there's a report, so a two-volume book, actually, from Springer that was from 2019, and it's called National Constitutions in European and Global Governance, Democracy, Rights, the Rule of Law. And the editors are Anneli Albi, actually an Estonian (laughs) at the University of Kent, and Samo Bardotsky. And um, this uh, book gives an overview about uh, 29 European countries. That means uh, formally 28 EU countries uh, plus uh, Switzerland about the role of uh, their national constitutions and uh, the shifts um, that uh, uh, the Europe, that being part of the European Union and also that uh, transnational development has uh, brought about for this constitution's also challenges as uh, it has, their scholars have been speaking about the end of constitutionalism, the twilight of constitutionalism. So uh, this book gives um, 
then authors and experts from the different countries the possibility to reflect on this uh, perspective uh, to their countries. And I think uh, it's, it's very good insight. And, and there's also a summary and an extra book commenting on this from Anneli Albi on this report as such, Great. on these findings. Thanks, Paloma. And I think that I can I can personally attest that this book is excellent if you're interested in learning more about Estonia as well as the other Baltic states. It has um, three very interesting chapters on Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, uh, which I, I think are three countries that are fascinating, you know, parts of the EU, but very important, but to some extent neglected parts of the European constitutional story. Um, so I think I highly, so that's a, thank you for that recommendation. I hope our listeners will, will take a look at that. Sanya, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, so on Kyrgyzstan, we unfortunately have very limited publications. Like generally on Central Asia, if you are interested just to look at the overview, I would probably recommend on one that was written on Hard Series by Scott Newton, The Constitutional Systems of Independent Central Asian States. And I also want to highlight that if you really want to know more about peculiarities of Central Asia, I think um, very good literature you can find in political science rather than in comparative constitutional law. Uh, and with that respect, I would definitely recommend the piece written uh, by John Hathershow on Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia. So there you can definitely see this uh, the, the, the huge internal power dynamics that we have in Kyrgyzstan, like pervasive clientelism, paternalistic states and corruption and etc. Um, because uh, this, I think, is also plays an indispensable role when we assess the constitutional development of constitutionalism generally in Central Asia. Thank you. Thanks, Sonia. Yeah, I think an important thing that we would also be interesting to discuss is the is the interdisciplinary relationship between political science and comparative constitutional law. But there's there are is I agree. I think in many cases that a lot of the there is a lot of very good, interesting comparative political theory and comparative political work, comparative political science work done on the region. Um, and of course, part of the question is if there is, hopefully, and in listening to this podcast, a group of young scholars who are inspired to study this region, that there's a lot of work to be done on the comparative constitutional side where we take constitutions a little bit more seriously. But in many cases, we can be, you know, this, this type of work can and should be informed by the work that, that political scientists are doing. Okay, Armand, something, uh, a book or article that um, helps capture the Armenian or, or experience post-Soviet experience? Uh, will, uh, paradoxically, uh, to offer insights uh, for constitutionalism in post-Soviet countries, I'm going to suggest an article that never mentions the post-Soviet space or actually is not even a new um, work. And I suggest that anyone interested in constitutionalism in this part of the world should, first of all, start with uh, Giovanni Sartori's very important uh, article called Constitutionalism, a Preliminary Discussion. It is written back in 1962, a very old, a very important contribution, but uh, which says a lot about what is constitutionalism, how it should be and how it can be in countries in which there is no an intrinsic sense of constitutionalism. But then if you give me a chance to also concentrate specifically on our region, I will offer another article, um, which is 
uh, about Russia specifically, but offers a lot of uh, important information about any other country in the post-Soviet region. It's by Richard Sakva, actually a political scientist based in the UK, in the University of Kent. It's called Constitutionalism and Accountability in Contemporary Russia. I still believe that uh, development and patterns in Russia, they're still determining a lot about uh, constitutional patterns in other parts of the post-Soviet space, probably with the little exception of Baltic states, but even there you can uh, see some uh, Soviet heritage uh, still predetermining developments. But as far as uh, Russia itself, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, of course, uh, Caucasus and Central Asia are concerned. Developments in uh, Russian constitutionalism are very much impacting and affecting those areas and those countries. Right. Uh, and Central I think Asia it, uh, itself and Caucasus and Armenia, unfortunately, they have been and they stay at the terra incognita for constitution, comparative constitutionalists. So I don't uh, have any clue about any fundamental works uh, devoted to this part of the world or to these specific countries specifically, unless we are so unmodest to offer our own work, but they do not offer mm -hmm. our own work. So again, these two pieces that I suggested, I think they will reveal a lot about the constitutionalism in our parts of the world. Thanks, Arman. And I mean, on that note, I mean, I I'll finish this podcast by saying that, you know, I think Hopefully, at some point in the future, we can do another podcast which explores. We haven't talked a lot about the the colonial influence of the you know the former you know the former kind of center of the Soviet Union, the Russian uh, the Russian uh, the, you know, Russia, and and its influence and its ongoing kind of post colonial influence on the region. I think is another really important um, discussion to have in the region. But I do hope that this discussion has. Um, shown people that, you know, and our listeners that there is a great deal of work to be done on the region. Uh, the region is, uh, you know, it's an important um, experience to add to the comparative constitutional law puzzle. Um, and for us, to, as we, as comparative constitutional law expands into understanding East Asia and South Asia, and um, I think, you know, new emerging grounds include Africa and post-Soviet Eurasia as, as ex adding new and interesting experiences that can help us understand constitutionalism. So on that, I really want to thank all three of my guests today. Um, and I hope you'll be able to take a look at some of the, the suggestions that they've suggested. And um, we, uh, we, we look forward to any comments you have on this podcast going forward. Thank, thank, thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this discussion has raised two really key points that I'm going to posit in summary very briefly that help us understand more about the post-Soviet world and help us to really um, begin to learn about some of the areas in which the post-Soviet world should be of interest to the comparative law world. First, is we see from the experts on our panel that the post-Soviet world is itself full of constitutional law advocates who themselves are actively involved in the struggle for constitutionalism. And this is a struggle that in many cases is more advanced in some parts, as we heard from Paloma, much more advanced in the Baltic states, in particular in Estonia, much less so in Central Asia, as we heard from Sanya, and uh, to a lesser extent um, in, in Armenia, as we heard from our men. But in many cases, what we hear is that there are in are scholars who have and who are engaged in the process of the struggle for constitutionalism and 
the support and the um, insights of comparative constitutional law are, are hugely significant for their work and their ongoing work as constitutional advocates in their own countries. Um, and second is that there are important uh, contributions that the region uh, provides to the broader debates uh, and to many of the broader debates that we have in comparative constitutional law. Um, first, we can see very strongly from some of the comments that Sanya uh, discussed about the ongoing developments in Central Asia and in Kyrgyzstan is the important way in which history is being used and in some cases being abused to uh, centralize power and to uh, lead and to build a kind of one-man, strong-man type super presidential systems. Uh, secondly, we've also heard how the region can help us understand better the re- relationship between judicial uh, power and judicial and courts and strategic politics and the role of politics in general. Um, we learn a lot, particularly in the way in which courts have uh, themselves been involved in um, political um, games and so forth and how courts can develop in that. And finally, we see that from the uh, Estonian context, the importance of popular sovereignty and particularly the rise of referendums and the challenges that referendums pose to constitutional systems um, that are built around the idea of limiting um, majorities in the favor of protecting individual rights and limiting the power of the state um, to advance certain particular principles of constitutionalism. So in some, really, the, the, the region that this, this podcast has really just been the beginning. It scratched the surface of a region that I think itself has many scholars who are, in, who are involved in the process of constant, the struggle for constitutionalism, but it also is a region that helps to deepen, in many cases, better understand key debates that we see within constitutional law and in the comparative constitutional law world. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If the recommendations from our guests interest you, you'll find all the information you need at our partner blog run by the International Association of Constitutional Law. Just go to blog-iacl-aidc.org. That's blog-iacl-aidc.org. And follow the links to Constitutional Café. This podcast comes to you from the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, and we're supported by the Australian Research Council through the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law. See you next time. Mm-hmm.